Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode features one of the three guests on my hour-long NPR show, heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the family-owned foreman pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Good enough for you to eat, but your cats won't appreciate that. I am back with Andrew Rowan, the president of Wellbeing International. We recently had a conversation about an article in the Wellbeing International magazine about managing cats in Australia, and it raised, in some ways, more topics than it answered. So I've asked Andrew to come back because his his scope of knowledge and his view both of history and of many species of animals is so valuable. And Andrew, thanks for coming back and continuing the conversation. When we left off, I was speaking somewhat disparagingly of the Australian government and whatever uh, people are in charge of animal management. And I don't take back anything I said. But I wonder if you could help a little um, to help us understand the difference perhaps between the Australian attitude towards outside help, suggestions, uh, support, and maybe even that of New Zealand or other countries? I mean, do you sure. see a difference? Yeah, yeah. No, there is, a, there is a distinct difference. I mean, the difference is that the Australians are basically making policy, talking simply to the wildlife conservation biologists and have ignored the animal uh, protection community in Australia, which is a $400 million Australian dollar operation business in really? Australia. So, I mean, th this is a group community with substantial resources. In New Zealand, um, the government uh, consulted fairly aggressively with the New Zealand um, SBCA. It's the Royal SBCA in New Zealand. And uh, and so you have a, a, a process that uh, incorporates input from both the animal protection community as well as the uh, wildlife conservation biologists. And uh, and so I see I see the New Zealand approach as inherently a, a more sophisticated and likely a more effective long-term approach. It certainly certainly doesn't have the same problems of immediately um, um, rejecting the advice and input from a, a, a significant stakeholder community. In the U.S., uh, I would note that um, we've had the same sort of divide between the conservation biologists and the uh, animal protection world. And in the U.S., animal protection movement is a $1 billion a year wow. operation. So, so I mean, 
And we're not talking about volunteer time that sort of these community cat carers are right. putting into the, into, the, into the mix either. And where you find that the cat issue has become more effectively managed, what you find is that the wildlife biology community, the conservation biologists and the cat people and the animal protection people are working more closely together. For example, in Portland, Oregon, uh, the local Audubon and the local Feral Cat Association are working closely together to try and address um, this out-cat issue. Um, and, and I would argue it's pretty successful. In Gainesville, Florida, the university has uh, spawned a sort of non-profit, uh, the catnip, uh, that uh, has been out there sterilizing cats, out, outdoor cats, in great numbers, and they are working with the, uh, the the conservation biology. Not all of them. I mean, there are biologists who refuse to work with the the, the cat cat advocates because they consider them to be on the wrong side of the fence. Interesting. Um, but but uh, so I mean, this divide between cat advocates and conservation biologists is very unfortunate. We organized when I was at the Humane Society. We organized a conference in Los Angeles, and invited most of the major people who had been writing about cats from the conservation biology uh, world to to speak. And they all refused. We we ended really? up with just a single individual from a biologist uh, from uh, Hawaii and a sort of wildlife biologist from Utah as our, and then we got one of the world's authorities on outdoor cats uh, from Oxford University as a keynote speaker. So we had uh, cat people, we had wildlife biology people there, but the U.S. wildlife biologists refused to attend. Uh, just wow. no, no, and so it was unfortunate, you know, because they saw the Humane Society as this evil empire that was promoting uh, cat welfare over and above wildlife welfare, which was wrong because. The Humane Society had both a wildlife department and a companion right. animal department. Exactly, and does and a huge amount of work. That argued vehemently. Yeah, does about a huge the, amount of work for, for wildlife for yeah, wolves I mean, or so, so, whatever you know, so species the, you want to think of. Yeah, that's right. So there was a lot of internal discussion about what to do, and in the end, we came up with a policy that sort of promoted TNR, but only well managed TNR. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so that. So, so, but nonetheless, we were perceived as the other side, the evil side of this particular divide, and by the wildlife conservation biologists. But as I pointed out to conservation biologists I spoke to, was that you know, as I said, we the, the, the animal protection business in the United States is a one billion dollar a year business, and I don't know what or a five billion dollar a year business. Sorry, I misspoke. And I don't know what proportion of that goes specifically to cats, but I suspect it's in the billions if you really sort of look at it. Plus all the volunteers who work with uh, on community cat issues and work with you know the the animal protection movement has a huge um, resource base. Yes, well which said. the wildlife biologists don't. The only money they get is from government and from you know sort of from funding agencies. And and they have yeah they have students and they have a they they have a community of wildlife biologists, but they don't have the wherewithal to really do this in a in a big way. And so so it's unfortunate 
that they're not bringing their sophistication and smarts in, when it comes to sort of evaluating projects and evaluating what one might do and what might work or what might not work to a system um, versus, um, you know, the energy and money and enthusiasm of all of these animal protection advocates. So, so if fact, the two can sit down and talk in together, in fact, we'll Andrew, solve it. The people with all that money, $5 billion, not $1 billion, billions all become such a blur of money that none of us really yeah, understands yeah. these huge numbers. But the people who love cats or who love wild horses even, you know, if we want to talk some other uh, human-created species or human-encouraged species that then went rogue or went wild, right. they also right. love songbirds and they also love you know the fauna and the flora it's not as if they are fanatic and all that should be protected or cared about is kitty cats that's the thing that's so odd is that the conservation biologists have blinders on they obviously yep. have chosen their profession with a with an equal fervor if you will than that of people even that do tnr who i consider the most passionate of cat lovers because of their huge personal sacrifice of time energy money and patience and hope right. you know I, I think they're extraordinary but i don't think that they don't look around and want other creatures and species to also flourish and not suffer that's what's really peculiar i mean in fact, you know so much about this field, but isn't it true that in the evolution of species that there are species that go extinct on their own without humans trying to eat their gizzards or shoot them for fun, right? I mean, it's part of life as things do evolve. So you can't yeah, necessarily I mean, it, hang on to one one charming, adorable little bird uh, versus the whole fact that nothing ever stays the same. Change happens, Right. Yeah, change does happen. It doesn't happen as fast as it's been happening under human influence. Of and, course. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, the the animals that we have around us, and I include um, the farm animals that are raised to be eaten, um, uh, have a huge impact on wildlife. And and you know, it's the uh, yes, cats have eradicated or have led to the extinction of certain island species, there's un that's unconvertible. But the fact of the matter is, is that going out and killing all the cats is not necessarily the answer to the, 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 the sort of final solution, and it's very expensive. So Marion Island, which is this island in the South Atlantic, not a particularly hospitable place to be. There, There's a human uh, um, station, a naval station on the island, they did. They introduced cats, and they introduced mice, and they introduced rats, and and so that that island has been heavily modified because of the presence of humans on on the island, and they decided that the cats were a problem for the seabird populations, and they were a, a problem. They were killing lots of seabirds, so they decided to eradicate the cats. It took millions of dollars to eradicate the cats in about ten, fifteen years in total, of intensive activity to get rid of all the cats. And uh, the, you know, and there have now been other problems associated with um, the removal of the cats. Um, so you change the biology, you change the the sort of predation impact, and uh, and it you know it doesn't it, it doesn't really sort of end up particularly well. The mice on another South Atlantic island are killing the seabirds. Wow. They're, they're 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 predating the the uh, the um, eggs the nests. nests. 
Yeah, they're predating the eggs, they're predating the nestlings. And so there's now, uh, you know, an effort, and, and there are no humans on this particular island that I'm talking about, it's, except occasionally. But, um, you know, they need, the, the, the mice now need to be removed in, in, <laughs> in order to save these seabird populations. It's true. So, it is true madness. I mean, it, it seems like something out of a Dr. Strangelove movie almost. We will play God. I mean, who is the most invasive species of all? Humans. Well, I mean, we yeah, show up and we, you know, yeah. we, we tear down the Amazon rainforest and we, we, we just clear cut everything. And then we yeah. decide we'll play God. And... It's, and we are foiled in that attempt, and well, yet you know, humility were, doesn't were, follow were, somehow. Yeah, humility I mean, and, there were, and wisdom. There were mammoths on North, in North America before humans arrived, and then humans arrived, and this was a, a, a huge sort of controversial because could the small number of humans? I mean, we're talking about thousands or tens of thousands of humans have eradicated mammals or, or or the megafauna species that inhabited the americas there was a ground sloth in south america and that has disappeared has been driven and extinct and one of the questions is could humans actually have driven these megafauna species to extinction and the answer increasingly looks like yes other other explanations such as climate change don't seem to have don't really sort of carry the the same convincing weight that uh, the presence of these few thousands of humans have. I mean, it's it's remarkable that um, some of these species have disappeared when humans have arrived. And I mean, of course, in Australia and New Zealand, you had um, uh, large animals that dis- disappeared um, fairly quickly after the arrival of humans in those two uh, in those two areas. So the so, so the humans come in, Andrew, with their with their bloodthirsty ways, and their egos bigger than a than a canyon, and they eradicate entire species, and then bring with them on their boat or on their you know the mice or whatever they bring with them, the cats, right. the dogs, the the fox, as you said in Australia, because people wanted to hunt them, and who knows what happened to the the hunting horses after they weren't doing that anymore, and. Look at the in North America. Just think of buffalo, all all those yep. great images, right, of the early days of America when we came in and slaughtered native people, but we eradicated I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of buffalo just oh, for, just millions. to do it. It was millions, millions, the right? The southern herd and the northern herd were numbered in the millions. Yeah, they're gone. You know, so, so you know, and how, they were gone. Well, they were they were they were pretty much eliminated in about twenty years. Isn't that so that's something? How long it took. So no yeah. wonder we could have gotten rid of, of the woolly mammoths or any other important species. I mean, just get out of my way. Humans are here. Yeah, well, the buffalo hunters did it with rifles. I mean, the, right. uh, the early humans did it with uh, stabbing spears club. And, and bows and arrows. You know? So, I mean, it was, uh, it was remarkable that you could kill off the mammoth population simply because, with a few thousand humans on the, on the, on the continent. So I think what we what the takeaway is, it's not really just about managing cats in Australia, or managing any species that that humans have brought in, and then, oops, they get out of control. Is how do we manage the humans? We just yeah, are so yeah. blind and arrogant, and we don't seem to learn or develop any humility about these situations. We somehow point fingers. So you have wildlife conservation biologists that got a degree from a, a university. Um, that gave them this badge of courage that they were going to be the only defenders of the environment. And then you have people 
and their pets as well as you know pe- songbirds they're feeding in the backyard and they think they are the ones who have all the answers and we just don't seem to be able to form a circle hold hands and say where is the peacemaker where is the wise man you know that we can pass yeah. a pipe yeah. around and smoke it and all decide something together where we change our ways not just the ways of the animals it just seems that if we don't improve how can we improve the the situation of the planet and the creatures on it well to be fair I, you know it's not just the university educated types or the university professor types it's uh, i mean the advocates too have their blind spots and their um, you know uh, and their oh, sure. biases you know oh and i'm so, not so, saying oh gosh yes i'm not saying that people managing a tnr a cat a community cat colony are impartial or objective. Good God. They're passionate. They're passionate. Yeah. I mean, the passions run so high that, that people are blinded to solutions that must exist somewhere, but we do yeah. get in our own way. We definitely trip over our own shoelaces, we humans, and kind of forget the big picture. And I love the yeah, fact no, that you no, have that no big question picture. question about that, yeah. Well, yeah, as we president do. of Wellbeing International, you've seen a great and a, and a long career at the Humane Society of the United States and Humane, Humane Society International. You've seen a lot of things come and go, and it's important that we keep what used to be called gray beards like you in the forefront to remind us, to give us a little bit of perspective, which I think may often be missing in these conversations. Andrew, thank you for all the good you're doing and the wisdom and facts and information you're spreading. I hope many more people will embrace your wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Tracy. Appreciate uh, the opportunity. Very much so. Thank you for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will support all of these companies because they stand behind my mission, which is to bring you delightfully informative Pet Talk Radio. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. They make many non-chemical products for the inside and outside of your pets, as well as innovative foods like no-hide chews and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which sometimes is all that my Weimaraner Maisie will eat. I'm very grateful also to Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two extraordinary women, Allison and Hannah, who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thanks again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one guest version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.